As Lisa said, we're going to read the Bible now. Uh, there's two readings. The first is Psalm 96, which is on page 934 of the Black Bibles. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The second reading is found on page 1554. It is just one verse of Matthew chapter 28. It's verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Thank you, Sam. Let's pray. Father, help us to love you with our minds and know you better, that we would be your people who respond to you rightly. Amen. What comes after Easter? Last week we celebrated Christ's death for our sins, his resurrection to life. From the dead, what comes next? What comes after that? Over the next five weeks, we'll be asking that question. What are the necessary hallmarks of being a community of believers who are formed by the resurrection? Today, we kick off with the first one, something the disciples immediately did after Jesus had risen from the dead, Matthew 28, verse 17. It's just been read. Jesus' disciples head north to Galilee where, as they've been told, there they will see him. They get to the mountain where they've been told to go, and there they see him, the risen Jesus. So therefore, what's the first immediate thing that they did? Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. That's the first response, and that's the one, really, that this talk is on. Although there was a second one. They uh, doubt Okay, first response, worship, magnifying God, worshipping God, except here it's worship of a man. And that, I think, explains the second reaction, doubt. And you can understand this operating in the minds of the disciples. To the worshippers, here's someone that they pinned their hopes on. He was cruelly and publicly executed in the most barbaric, horrific of ways, truly dead, and yet... Beyond all hopes, that he'd come alive. He, 
and not just resuscitated where he was breathing now but still wounded from his crucifixion. No, he was, he was full of, he was the Lord of life, resurrected, the Lord of life and death, not just someone from God but of God. They worshipped him. And yet for the doubters, you know, worship is something that you only give God. Yes, Jesus is risen, we can see him. Yes, God's clearly been at work, but even if he's from God, does that mean he is God? Worship, is it right to worship the man, Jesus Christ? You can understand both responses, worship and doubt. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand as to which you'd most likely incline towards in regard to Jesus, what would it be? Would you worship him or not so sure? When the worshippers of Jesus hear that some of the first disciples doubted, you know, normally we who worship find that, (laughs) that detail frankly embarrassing. We want to skip quickly to the next verse, which is the Great Commission. Much safer territory, isn't it, to be on? Uh, We've heard all about that before. Um, But the doubt, you know, that's embarrassing and awkward, as if the doubt of the first eyewitnesses might somehow undermine the validity of our own worship of Jesus. When the doubters read that the first disciples worship Jesus, this, this creates a problem, because worship is something that you only do For God, how is it right to worship a man? Now, whichever you are, if you've got your Bibles open, I want you to see that what comes next in Jesus' great commission of his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, that is, in fact, an answer to the disciples' doubt, and it's a directive for the worshippers. In other words, the great commission comes as a response to the disciples' own response to seeing Jesus alive. You listen to how the scene unfolds. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them. So up until now, he'd been some way off. When they respond that way, then he comes to them and he says the words of the Great Commission. Now, my hunch is that most of us probably haven't even ever considered that Jesus' words in the great commission of his disciples is connected with the responses of worship and doubt. But it is. It is an answer to the doubters, and it's also there to focus the disciples' worship. Why? Because worship isn't a momentary thing, something you do on first glimpse of the resurrected Jesus or something that we do only when we come to church on a Sunday, worship involves the whole of our lives. And Jesus in the Great Commission gives their worship of Jesus, our worship of Jesus, a whole of life focus. He tells us what we're to be about. So Jesus wants us to focus in on the Great Commission. If you're a worshiper, what do you do with doubters? You take them to the Great Commission. If you're a doubter who questions the validity of worshipping Jesus, what do you do? You go to the Great Commission. Now, to help us to understand Jesus' answer to his disciples, we need to do a bit of deep digging in the background to the Great Commission 
to his disciples, which is to go to Psalm 96. Now, the reason we're going there is because it is a psalm which talks about worship, but more importantly, it has been described as the Great Commission of the Old Testament. This is the background to what Jesus says later on to his disciples. So, Psalm 96, have a look. It begins with something new. Sing to the Lord a new song. Not an old song, a new song. Why a new song? Is it that they're just tired of their old tunes? No, no, no. They were writing music all the time. We have a whole book of Psalms. Um, it's new, not because they were tired of their old tunes, but because something new had happened. Something had happened in their history. What's this new thing that's worth singing about? Let's see if we can work it out. The psalm begins with a trumpet call to action, to sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord, all the earth, sing to the Lord, uh, praise his name, proclaim his salvation, declare his glory, sing, 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 praise, proclaim, declare. Here is a call to, for us to open our mouths to speak about the Lord. And all this so that the nations, verse three, all peoples, that all the earth might be able to join in on the song. The scope of uh, this call to action is huge. And the call to speak is continual, to do it day after day, not just once, not twice, but day after day, continually do this. Now, if you know, know anything about the history of Israel, this call to go outward to the nations and speak, it really is something new. Because Israel kept itself separate to the nations. But here's a call for them to, Reverse that, to go out and proclaim the Lord's salvation, his glory, his marvellous deeds. Here is the great commission of the Old Testament, right? Now, we have to ask, what was the reason for this call to go out? There must have been an historical reason, but actually in the psalm we're given a more fundamental reason, and that is that God is worthy of praise. In fact, not just worthy, but most worthy. I mean, lots of things are worthy of praise, aren't they? Aren't they? Our, our heroes, our sporting teams, you know, acts of selflessness and kindness, great achievements. But of all the things that clog the airways and compete for our attention in the airways of praise, it's the Lord who tops them all. Why? Because he, the Lord, is to be feared above all gods. Why is he to be feared above all gods? Because, verse 5, all the gods of the nations are idols, that is, they have eyes that they can't see, ears that they can't hear, feet and hand that can't, can't move. However sincere an idolater is, they are just fundamentally flawed in what they're doing in worshipping those things. And even in Australia, where we're more sophisticated than that, and we make idols out of things that can see and hear and move because we make idols out of AFL stars and our kids, none of them are worthy of worship like the Lord. Why not? Because verse 5... The Lord made all these things. The Lord made the heavens. And we, of all the people in the history of the world, we should be most awestruck by this because more than any other previous generation, we have images of galaxies and stars that no one else could see in the past. Just this month, what was the great astronomical discovery? The photo of the black hole, right? How far away is that black hole? It's in another galaxy, not the Milky Way, which has 250 million billion stars in it. No, 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 it's further away than that. It is 500 million light years away, and we've got a photo of it, gadzooks. All right, isn't that, that blows your mind, and the Lord made it. 
You know, previous cultures associated the stars with gods. It was the Lord who made all the stars. He made all of them. So of all the things, the little things that we worship, who gets close to that? You know, no one does. The one and only God made it all, right? He made it all. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of worship. No one beats him. Okay, it's his unique role as creator which makes him most worthy to be spoken of in praise. So do we. You know, do we? Do you? Do I? We should, shouldn't we? We absolutely should. Because praise, in fact, has a goal. Uh, Verses 7 to 9, the goal is salvation, the salvation of nations. Um, Actually, in verse 7, it's no longer Israel, it's the nations being addressed. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. But to do that, they have to know him. Because to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength means to say, you, Lord, you have glory and strength. But you can only say that when you know him, right? Verse 8 goes further, calling on the families of nations to ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name, to who he is. To bring an offering. Now, to come into his courts, here's something new. And the end goal, the action to which all this speaking, all this ascribing is heading towards is international worship, right? By all people. There's a picture of all the nations of the world coming to Jerusalem, to the temple, bringing their offerings in worship of the Lord. Verse 9, worship the Lord in, as we sang it, holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. What does that mean, worship the Lord in holy array, the splendor of his holiness? It means holy garments, holy clothing, having our own garments of sin removed and decked out in God's holiness, God's garments. How does that happen? What's being spoken of here is salvation. The families of the nations coming into God's temple, standing before God, not in their own righteousness, but in a righteousness, a holiness that comes to them from God and worship. That's how they worship, decked out in holy array. It's the only way you can. Well, how are the nations of the world going to be covered in God's holiness and worship the Lord? The answer comes in the message, the message that God's people are to proclaim to the nations. And finally, we get to the content. What is it that we have to speak out, you see? We're told in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And we think, well, that's hardly new, is it? (laughs) Um, When has the Lord not been reigning? You know, that's who he is. He's the Lord. He rules. He reigns. And yet this psalm is calling us to sing to the Lord a new song, a new song which somehow speaks of the Lord reigning or ruling in a new way, in such a way that draws the nations in, draws them in to be covered with God's holiness, to stand before him in his presence, to stand there and worship What is this new way of reigning that means salvation for the nations? What is it that makes this song new? The rest of verse 10 doesn't seem to offer any clues. It speaks of the Lord over which God rules being firmly and established, firmly established, immovable. And in much the same way, just as that is true, so also God will judge the peoples with justice. And we think, oh, that sounds scary. How is that good news? Thankfully, the Bible helps us out. Because, guess what? 
there is another place in the Bible where Psalm 96 is written out. And you know it, don't you? You know it. Don't you? Yeah. 1 Chronicles 16, of course. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> right, so if you look up 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 to 33, there you have Psalm 96 there, and this describes the original historical context where this psalm was first sung. All right, so here's the situation. It's 1,000 BC. David is king. 1 Chronicles 16 describes how young King David, now the king of Israel, he just conquered Jerusalem and he'd just begun to reign there. And then in a very public moment with great celebration, all of the nation are assembled. David calls on Asaph, who's the head of the temples, temple singers, and the temple singers come in and they sing this psalm for the first time, this new song, because something's happened. God is reigning in a new way where he wasn't reigning before. What is the difference? What's new? Well, what's new is that King David is now no longer on the run. God's chosen king now is in Jerusalem, and for the first time, God is ru ruling over his people through his chosen king in the city, a fixed place, the city of David. And then, of course, we see a new and lasting salvation that's happened against an ancient enemy. This is, this is massive. In chapter 14, if you rewind back a bit, God goes into battle with David to fight for his people against an ancient enemy, the, the Philistines. Remember David and Goliath, right? They, Goliath was a Philistine, right? And they'd been against God's people since the very beginning. And God marches out ahead of David in the tops of the balsam trees, get your head around that, causes, and, and David strikes down the Philistines for the last time. They are a spent nation after this causing, verse 17, David's fame to spread all around the nations. So we have David ruling from Jerusalem, God and his anointed king saving his people against an ancient enemy, and all that is backdrop for the big shebang, the thing that happens in chapter 16, when the ark of God, right, that gold-covered box with the Ten Commandments in it, that ark, that ark which symbolizes the rule of God, and the presence of God, the ark of God for the first time comes into Jerusalem, brought by David there. And it's so easy to miss how significant that moment is because now the king of God's people, right, is bringing the symbol of God's presence and God's rule into the city of David, meaning that the city of David now becomes the city of God. And God rules in a place through his anointed king for the first time. All right? That's what's new. You want to meet God in David's time? You go to Jerusalem, to the city of David, the city of God. Come to Jerusalem, the city of peace, where peace really does exist because it's the kingdom of God, where God's king David is reigning on the throne under God, reigning in righteousness and justice, making just judgments. And that's why Psalm 96 speaks so positively about God judging the world with justice. It's not the end times final judgment he's talking about. It's the righteous judgments that a king makes to administer his kingdom with justice. Justice and righteousness are the necessary preconditions for peace and for people to flourish. But now here is the, it's the right environment now for all that to happen. And it's set to happen in a way that has never happened before. The Lord reigning through his chosen king 
from the city of peace. And this is new. This is good news worth singing about. This is a new song. So what? King David's long dead. You won't find the ark of God anymore in Jerusalem. God's no longer ruling the world from a city, neither Jerusalem nor any other city. And yet, we still sing Psalm 96. Why do we sing Psalm 96? We sing it because what that psalm celebrated actually was never really about David in Jerusalem because what it foretold of all the nations coming in and standing before God, decked out in holy array and worshipping the Lord in his temple, never happened. Never happened. In fact, it was only ever a pointer to something beyond. What this psalm spoke about has actually been fulfilled in David's greatest son, the son of David, Jesus. Because when you think about it, there was a moment when Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, came into Jerusalem and reigned in Jerusalem. Do you remember that moment? We celebrated it last week, didn't we? Where he was the anointed one, he was anointed for burial, wasn't he? Mocked in a purple robe, crowned with a crown of thorns with a sign above his head, proclaiming him to be the king, the king of the Jews. It was on the cross that God achieved that new and lasting salvation for us. There, it was there that he fought our ancient enemy, not the Philistines, but, you know, they're nothing. No, the real ancient enemy, death and guilt and punishment, and he took it on. He wasn't in the top of the balsam trees. He was on the cross, though, on the wood. And he fought the enemy and he won so that whoever comes to him in faith, God draws us to worship and he decks us out in holy array. He takes our sin-stained clothes, throws them away and gives us his righteousness, Christ's own righteousness. We can stand before him in his presence. That's why the curtain was torn. We can stand before God in his temple. The way's open now. And it's news for all the nations. And by God's people singing of this, proclaiming it, declaring his salvation to the nations, we invite other people to come in and stand before the Lord and worship. You know, Asaph and his singers probably thought they had a lot to sing about. And you song, we've got so much more. We're the real singers, you know, not them. It's we who really can proclaim the salvation that's real to the nations. It's we who have that new song to sing because Jesus, the son of David, he's not dead, he's alive. He's alive, he rose from the dead. He's still alive, he's still reigning, he's still on the throne and he's calling nations to himself. And how does he do it? He does it through our worship, through our praising him, our magnifying how great he is, by speaking of him, by telling of his wonderful deeds through us fulfilling the Great Commission. More of that in two weeks' time. Okay, so Psalm 96 is the background to the Great Commission, Jesus' Great Commission. Now I want to go back into Matthew, now we've heard all that, and think about those twin responses of worship and doubt. You know, is it right to worship Jesus, who though risen from the dead is still a man? When some of the disciples doubted, then Jesus came to, him, came to them and said, of course it's right to worship me, 
Is it right to worship me? Yes. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you're sort of in doubt about whether you think this is the right thing to do, listen to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's no one more powerful, more worthy of worship than me. I have all the authority in heaven. God the Father, he's not going to be put out if we only worship his son. In fact, worship of God's son is precisely the right thing to do given who Jesus is. And worship of Jesus is precisely the right thing for us to do on earth because he has all authority on earth as well. You can't get anyone more powerful on earth than the risen Jesus. You take it a step further. If the Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth to his Son, to fail to worship his Son is to turn a blind eye to the massive endorsement that the Father has given to the Son, and therefore it's dishonouring to the Father if you fail to worship the Son. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. But then he goes on, right? He's answered the doubters. Now he goes on to speak to the worshippers. Okay. When he sends out his disciples to all the nations, exactly in line with Psalm 96, he says who God is. He says when you baptize people, you're to baptize them into God. Who is God? Who is the Lord of Psalm 96? Who is the Lord most worthy of praise? The God of the Old Testament? Jesus tells us. One God, baptizing them into the name, not names, the name, singular, not names, plural. One God, not three, into the name of, and then he tells us who the Lord is. Father, Son, and Spirit. And finally we have it. Who is the Lord of the Old Testament? One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And with that revelation, the doubts of the doubters are removed because given that is who God is, it's entirely right to worship Jesus because it's in worshipping Jesus that we worship the one and only God. And because he who died for our sins and was raised from the dead, he now clothes us in holy array and he perfects our worship. He takes our paltry worship (laughs) and it's now acceptable because we are decked out in holy array in Christ's righteousness. And then Jesus pushes his disciples even further. He talks about the spirit when he says in verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we think, well, how is Jesus with us when we can't see him, he's not physically in the room, he's with us by his spirit. The spirit is not separate to Jesus, the spirit is the spirit of Jesus and of the Father, one God in three. Last point, magnifying the Lord at Trinity Church, Aldgate. You know, the leadership team have been thinking very hard about what our vision as a church should be. What would God have us do? And there's been talk of five M's, you know, and I guess this sermon series is a series on five M's. But I'm grounding it in what, what are the hallmarks of a, the essential hallmarks of a group of believers who are formed by the resurrection of Jesus. The first one is worship or magnification, making God big in our own lives. We want to make God seem big. Ourselves, we don't matter. So we're, not, we're small. <laughs> we want to make God big. We want to be a church that's known for doing that. We want to do it better. Our vision as a church, we've decided, should be that we should be people who are loving of God, 
That's to magnify God. But also more than that, to be loving of one another. And then we'll hear about membership next week and maturity and ministry. And we also want to be a church that loves other people. Okay. Um, there's the five M's. But it's all under the heading of loving, actually. Loving God, loving people. Today we've been thinking about loving God, worshipping God, magnifying God with all of our lives. That's the first of the five hallmarks of believers formed by the resurrection. And we're going to focus on how we can magnify God in all of our lives, not just when we're together, but throughout the week. And two very, very small, simple things. You know, it'd be wonderful to be able to put together playlists of songs which are kind of synced with the sermon series, um, which you can play in your car. So you can sing God's praises, you know, as you drive throughout the week. It will help fuel your magnification of God in your own heart and mind, and then outwardly. It has to begin here. Also, many people have signed up to those Bible reading online programs, you know, on YouVersion, um, where you, you, you try and read through the Bible once in a year. And then you can make comments. Julie sends comments all the time about little verses that, she, sorry, now she's wincing, but other people do as well. <laughs> you know, Rachel here has done, and you know, I've never done it, but I really enjoy reading other people's comments. They're good, Simon. He's a great comment writer. It's very encouraging, you know, and just helping us throughout the week to magnify God. Now, there's so much more we can do, but they're two very little things. But then, of course, it's not just through the week. It's, on, it's when we gather together, because this gives a focus point, a, you know, a pointy end to our worship, to our magnification of God. And of course, we'll magnify God and worship God in song. And that's why our bands and our song leaders and our musicians are so, so important to help us sing, sing God's praises. And we want to be able to do that better. And we want to be a people who are known for singing out of love for the Lord, which fuels our love. But it's more than that. It's everything we do from the setup team and the pack-up team to the Bible readers, the prayers, um, the preacher, the listeners, you know, as we participate um, in everything we do. It's all an act of worship. It must be an act of worship, magnifying God. And there should be a recursive relationship between what happens when we gather together and then what happens throughout the week so that when we gather together, it's fuel for us to magnify God, to make God big throughout the week in our lives. But also what happens in our lives throughout the week makes us hungry to come together again. That's, that's the church we want to be, a church that makes God big. And sometimes, you know, we can get critical, can't we? And constru constructive, helpful criticism, is it has a place. But so I've done this. Sometimes you think, oh, I could do that better, you know, or gee, they, you know, they... They didn't do that so well. And there's an element of sinfulness about that, isn't there? Because we want to make ourselves big, but actually that's the opposite of magnifying God. Magnifying God is making ourselves small. It's making God big. It doesn't matter who's up the front. It doesn't matter who's on the stage singing or playing. It doesn't matter who's preaching. As long as God is magnified. Because we want to be a church that magnifies God, not big God, little us. That's right, isn't it? given who he is and who we are. Big God, little us. We want to keep that focus. We want to be a people.
Let's set aside God in our hearts and lives and make him big and proclaim him. He is so worthy of praise. Heavenly Father, we praise you, the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you, Lord Jesus, the Lord of life, resurrected from the dead. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that through your Spirit you raised him to life. And we praise you that you're at work in us and that you take Christ's righteousness and give it to those who trust and believe that we may stand before you and know you and worship you. And we pray that you would be pleased to make yourself bigger in our hearts and lives, individually and collectively, so that we would exalt you and the anointed, your, and Christ, the anointed King, through whom you reign, in the power of your Spirit. Amen.